Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of SAF Insights. Today we'll be talking about hydrogen and in particular the role of hydrogen in aviation, both in its pure form and as component to produce e-fuels or synthetic fuels to power aircraft. My name is Julia Squadrin, I'm the Associate Editor of Argus Biofuels and today with me is Stefan Krumpelmann, Editor of the Argus Hydrogen Report. Hi Stefan, thank you for joining me today. Hi Julia, thanks for having me on that. Let's j jump right in. So in mid-February, the European Commission published a delegated act to define what constitutes renewable hydrogen. Could you explain us what definitions, provisions the act includes? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Julia. Firstly, I think it's just worth pointing out how um, how long awaited this definition actually had been because um, initially the delegated act by the Commission was supposed to be published um, by the end of 2021 and now we are well into 2023 and now um, we have it and it's of course crucial for project developers because it gives certainty, it gives clarity on what will actually count as renewable hydrogen. And that's very relevant, of course, if you say, if you want subsidies, if you want to um, participate in auctions such as those by the um, European hydrogen banks that are scheduled for later this year and so on and so forth. And that's why um, the, in, the industry had really waited for that for a very long time um, and had actually grown quite impatient. So when it comes to, you know, what it actually entails, it's of course worth um, pointing out that um, renewable hydrogen naturally requires a water electrolysis process based on renewable electricity. But the important distinction, and that's kind of a crucial bit of it, is how your electrolyzer or where your electrolyzer gets the electricity from. So is it directly connected to a renewable um, installation, say a solar or wind farm, without being connected to the electricity grid, or is it directly um, linked to the electricity grid and actually takes power from that? And based on the definition that the um, Commission has put out, it's a lot um, more straightforward if it's directly connected to a renewable power installation. So then the only key requirement you actually have to adhere to is this um, much debated additionality requirement, um, which basically specifies that your plant or your renewable installation should not have come online more than three years before your electrolyzer. And that is basically um, intended to you know, avoid cannibalization. So um they they call that cannibalization but it basically just means that you know you don't want to take any existing renewable power generation capacity away to produce um uh, your renewable hydrogen because we need all that power for our electrification of course and that will actually apply from 2028 onwards this additionality requirement but it gets a lot more complicated when you have an electrolyzer that's actually um, connected directly to the to the power grid so in most cases, additionality um, also applies, but you will also actually need a renewable power purchase agreement. So you need to um, to prove that you've actually bought renewable power. And that's, of course, intended to prevent that you're producing hydrogen um, with electricity from the grid that's actually um, produced with um, fossil fuels, whether it's, you know, gas or coal or whatever. And then you also have uh, requirements for geographical and temporal correlation between your renewable power supply and your hydrogen output. I'm not going to go into too much detail on that. That's also fa a fairly complex one, of course, but it basically revolves around the idea of how your renewable power supply matches with the renewable hydrogen. There are some crucial exceptions though, to, this, um, to these rules around um, grid-connected electrolyzers. And Basically, the most far-reaching one is for grids where you actually have a renewable power share in the mix, in the electricity mix of 90% or more. So in those cases, you actually don't need the additionality or the additionality requirement doesn't apply. 
you also don't need the renewable power purchase agreement, hence also not the correlations. But for now, um, that actually only applies to run to three bidding zones in Sweden. Um, but um, it, it could be a lot more going forward towards the end of the decade as the share of renewable power in, in countries actually um, increases. And then um, you also have this case where the renewable power share does not reach that threshold, but where your emissions intensity in the grid is actually below 18 grams of CO2 equivalent per megajoule. That is basically um, applicable for France more than anyone else. And that is, of course, because France is a large share of, um, of nuclear power in the grid, and hence it reaches this relatively low emissions intensity despite not having um, such a high degree of, of renewable power. And in those grids, you actually don't have the additionality um, requirement, but what you still have is the need to have a renewable power purchase agreement um, and the temporal and geographical correlation. And that is very important because it had actually been erroneously reported by a lot of media, especially uh, mainstream media, that basically the rules as they stand now um, would kind of open the door for hydrogen produced from nuclear um, power in the French grid. And that's not really the case because you still need to buy renewable power equivalent to the hydrogen that you're going to produce even in France or other grid where that would eventually um, apply. So I think that's very, very crucial to bear in mind. And the last point I would like to make, these rules will not only apply to production within Europe, but in the EU, but the EU is also quite specific that they would also regard this as applicable for production abroad that then, for instance, imported um, abroad to the EU. So fairly complex, but absolutely crucial, of course, for project developers to understand um, what's behind all this and how all of this works. Thanks, Stefan. Yeah, it sounds fairly complex, but I think it's good to, to have an overview like this. And so, I mean, it was long awaited. And is this the final version of the definition of renewable hydrogen and the delegated act? Well, I'm afraid to say it's not as much as um, the project developers um, would like it to, or at least it's not for certain that this one um, is actually the final version. And that's because the European Parliament and the European Council could theoretically still reject it. So Parliament actually already extended the scrutiny period, so the period during which it can review um, this delegated act by two months to a total of four. So as you rightly said in the beginning, it was um, published in mid-February. So that now means we have four months, so that takes us to June um, until when we accept or reject it. And there are actually signs of resistance from Parliament. So we're hearing that, um, you know, there may actually be quite a lot going against or quite a lot of members going against it. Um, and yeah, basically what that means, it cannot be taken as a given just yet that this is actually the um, definition as it will stand eventually. Um, it's, cru it's crucial, sorry, it's, it's crucial to mention that it's um, basically Parliament and the Council cannot amend it. They can only eject, uh, approve it or reject it. And then if they reject it, it would basically be back to the drawing board. Okay, so it might not be over just yet. We might not That's be right. at the, at the final right, exactly. stage. Yeah, okay, great. I'm sure for the industry, they can't wait to have a final text out there. But if we just yeah, look at the, yeah, yeah, it's been, it's been a while. Um, so if we just look at the definition that we've just discussed, um, how is the European and, and global capacity looking? So how much renewable hydrogen that fits this EU definition is produced today and how much uh, will be produced in the coming years? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, realistically, there is very little um, renewable hydrogen produced full stop, you know, even, you know, if you were to apply a more lenient um, definition, it's just not, um, yeah, we, we don't really have the capacity in Europe or elsewhere um, or any meaningful capacity really um, as of now. But of course, um, everybody is expecting this to be ramped up quite considerably over the next couple of years and um, especially decades. And um, the EU itself is targeting 10 million tons per year of renewable hydrogen um, to be produced domestically by 2030. And that should then, of course, um, kind of um, adhere to these to these rules, ideally. And it also wants to um, to import the same amount. And as I mentioned, that would also um, theoretically um, uh, comply with these rules. So we've seen lots and lots of giga projects being announced um, in, the, in the Southern Hemisphere in particular. But the big question is, of course, will they materialize? How many of them will materialize? And that's a big kind of gap between ambition and reality, potentially, because realistically, we have seen very, very few um, final investment decisions, especially on the large projects. And it's also worth noting, we've been hearing it at, uh, at conferences recently that, um, especially with this EU definition now, project developers in places like the Middle East, which of course sits quite interestingly between kind of Asia and Europe, may actually be looking to sell more of their supply to, say, East Asia, say, Japan, South Korea, if the rules there are more lenient than within the EU, because a lot of them are saying that this relatively strict EU rules could actually weigh on the economics um, of their projects. So that's an interesting one to watch as well. Right. No, that's that's very interesting. So in a way, having this definition should help the industry, but on the other hand, it could impact some other flows because is potentially stricter than what we see in other regions. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah, no, that's that's an interesting point. Um, but let's just focus a bit more on the aviation sector specifically. So as you know, the EU is planning to introduce a SAF mandate in, in 2025, um, which also includes sub-targets for synthetic SAF. So how, in your view, does the published the, the the definition that was just published of renewable hydrogen and also of um, renewable fuels of non-biological origins or RFNBOs, how does this impact the SAS market? Yeah, I mean, I think crucially, um, it's really all about kind of clarity again, because, um, and you just mentioned, um, we have this parliament's request for potentially, I think it's 0.04% share of synthetic fuels in EU aviation by 2025. And of course, if that actually goes through, I mean, that's just by the time we may actually have this definition, if that actually gets to June, that's just one and a half years away. So it's really high time that we got there if we want to get to these targets. So I think it's really all about, you know, clarity and um, project developers that may be looking to um, to produce um, SAF based on renewable hydrogen um, to really give them the clarity to um, to know um, what the uh, the appropriate or the the compliant processes are for this, and um, the same of course goes in for the uh, for the targets that are, are a bit further out. If we really want to ramp up production, we need the clarity for this as well. And you know, if we want to get to, I think it's um, then the sub targets that the Commission had said. I think we're going up to twenty eight percent by twenty fifty. So. That's quite a large share, and we of course then need the clarity for um, for projects um, in terms of what actually counts as renewable hydrogen. And I think what is really really interesting to see in the sector at the moment, in terms of um, um, in terms of ESAF in particular, is that really ESAF is one of the hydrogen-based products for which firms can already seemingly secure quite a lot of offtake, um, which differentiates it in a way from 
um, some of the other hydrogen-based products where, of course, it, it's still very slow. And I think the mandates, um, not only in, in Europe, but elsewhere potentially as well, really have a role to play in this. So, I mean, one example is um, DG Fuels, which has a plant or develops a plant in Louisiana, and um, they're planning an 843, I think it's 843 megawatt electrolyzer, which is really pretty big. And they have secured offtake for all their outputs, although they still have not reached FID. And they've got deals, I think, with Air France, KLM, um, and also with, with Delta Airlines. And then another, another example is Raven, which um, is planning to convert organic waste into hydrogen and then into ESAF. And they have offtake deals from all Nippon Airways and Japan Airlines. And of course, Japan Airlines have to reduce or, off, or offset their, uh, I think it's 15% of their emission from, from 2019 levels from next year onwards. So there's, I think, a lot of incentive there, and I think that works. So it, that works in a way that basically if you are a hydrogen producer, I think ESAF is an interesting product to potentially look at. And lastly, I think it's worth mentioning that um, renewable hydrogen-based SAF is also included in Germany's age to global tenders. Um, for and we recently actually saw a deadline for that being pushed back for the second time now it's 11th of april for the esaf tender under that scheme and that has been because of strong interest and because of a lot of companies wanting to participate in this so interest is certainly high in that thanks stefan so yeah sounds like in, in aviation there's a lot of potential for hydrogen-based fuels um but we've heard a lot of discussions also around the use of hydrogens as a fuel in itself, uh, rather than as a component to produce these synthetic fuels. What's your view on that? Is that something that potentially is a lot further out? Um, or I don't know, what's your view in, in, in the use of hydrogen as, as fuel directly? Yeah, I think further out probably um, hits the nail on the head. I think um, it's sometimes quite difficult to say kind of from the outset exactly where companies stand on their research and their development on this. But um, I would probably say that, um, you know, while ESAF seems like a fairly realistic option, even the not too distant future, I think direct hydrogen use seems much further away, or at least there's much, it's much more of an unknown, I would say, um, partly because of, you know, the technological complexities involved with it. And we've seen quite a lot of announcements from companies, you know, such as Zero Avia, for instance, um, which is developing quite a lot of technology in the field, and they report quite frequently on, you know, potential technological breakthroughs, etc. And admittedly, some of this is quite exciting. But yeah, it's quite, as I said, it's quite difficult, I think, to judge from the outside how realistic some of their aims are. I think they've said that they could have their first commercial flights already ready by 2025 using only hydrogen. But again, it, I think there are a lot more unknowns and a lot more question marks around that than kind of around the um, the ESAF, which of course seems a lot more applicable um, or a lot more um, ready um, in terms of where we stand right now. Okay, yeah, I think uh, that's also the view that we get on, on our side looking at, at, at the aviation sector specifically. ESAF sounds a lot more of a, of a reality and a short-term reality, let's say, compared to use of hydrogen. But it's also interesting to see that there are a lot of tests happening and, you know, it's not yeah, something that's sure. been dismissed. Yeah, I mean, I think there are also quite a lot of um, of big firms really getting involved with this um, and um, kind of throwing their weight behind it and taking this option quite seriously of, you know, direct hydrogen use. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it is considered as a realistic option by, by quite a few um, big names as well. Yeah, definitely. We'll stay tuned and see how this develops um, going forward. 
Um, but yeah, this is a great overview, I think. I think it was really clear to just and, and, and helpful to go over the definition. There's a lot of details in that, so it's good to have a clear view of that. And then, um, yeah, I'm sure um, we'll have another conversation at some point once that's finalized and we see actually more e-fuels in the market. So thank you very much, Stefan, for your time today. And Absolutely, my pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much. And then for our listener, if you enjoy the podcast, uh, please be sure to tune in for other episodes in the uh, in our series Staff Insights. And for more information on Argus global coverage of the sustainable aviation fuel market, please visit argusmedia.com forward slash staff. Thank you so much, Stefan. It was great chatting with you. Thanks, Julia. It was indeed.